Welcome to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. I am Michael Kingswood, retired naval officer, Christian, dad, and writer extraordinaire. I mostly focus on science fiction and fantasy, but I've been known to write just about everything under the sun, including the occasional romance. The purpose of this podcast is to share my stories with you, the reading slash listening public. So sit back and relax, because I'm going to tell you the story. Hey friends, Michael Kingswood here. It's story time, and it's Saturday, so Story Saturday. We are moving ahead with our stories from The Great Challenge, the 52 stories that I wrote over the course of a year as part of a challenge, that challenge which I am restarting actually this week, and I'm already a little behind on it because I got to get the story in tomorrow night. It's Saturday morning as I read th- as I record this, and I haven't started it yet. <laughs> That's pretty much par for the course for me on this challenge. Plus, uh, it's been a busy week. A lot of good stuff happened this week. The most important thing is I finished the final proofing of campaign season, Gillen Reveal Chronicles number six. Uh, I went and did uh, an extra proof read through, and I'm glad I did because I've had a lot of extra errors that the first couple rounds had missed. So anyway, that got... Sent out to the Kickstarter backers on the other day. I want to say it was on Wednesday. And it's up pre-order everywhere now, including my website, michaelkingswood.com slash store. So go get it. It's a good book. If you haven't read the rest of the series yet, I went ahead and made the first book, Glimmer Vale, uh, free for a temporary time frame just to let people have a zero entrance fee to the series this is book six there's plenty of money to be made from selling the rest why not let people have a little taste like a drug dealer give them a little taste for free and make them come back for more or something like that anyway um let's get on with today's story though shall we uh this is story number was it 26 man 26 terran new year it is a science fiction story as the name implies it's also got a romance and uh, i wrote it i'm reading it it's awesome let's get to it talk to you when it's done why on god's green earth did the new year always have to fall on the exact date and time that terra had set for it centuries ago it would have been one thing if persephone's orbital revolution and rotation had matched terra's but it didn't One day on Persephone was 1.0498576 Earth Day. And a year on Persephone would take... Jenny scowled as she resisted doing the math that would convert a 330-day year into a Terran year. And never mind that she had memorized the conversion to a Terran day and year way back in second grade. It didn't matter, no matter what the variation may or may not be. And when she was honest with herself, Jenny knew exactly how much the variation was. What mattered was that a year on Persephone was not a year on Terra, and where the hell did the Terrans get off telling the Persephonans that they had to celebrate the New Year by Terra's calendar? But Jenny knew the answer to that as soon as she thought it. The Terrans got away with it because they had the economic, social, and military might to enforce it, and wasn't a damn thing Persephone and her patriots could do but grind their teeth, bend the knee, and grovel before Terra's imperial might. Dad, or be killed utterly to the fifth generation, no one would ever choose to risk that. So Jenny had grown up beneath the boot of the Terran Empire, listened to its news messages of fighting for peace, freedom, and self-determination for all, while at the same time turning power over the Empire's controlled territories, including her home, 
Two political flunkies who knew less than nothing about how to manage business on the lands and planets they had just been bequeathed, but who had expertise in milking that production for the flunkies' own gain, and apparently more importantly, in milking the population's young virgins for his own pleasure as well. And the Empire wondered why production was down over 20%, or why rebellion tended to flare up every 20 to 25 years. All that being said, Kevin still stood in front of Jenny, his expression a mixture of hope and terror, as he waited for her to answer to his invitation to the New Year's Eve ball. In all of her 16 years, Jenny had only had one boy who could even approximate a boyfriend, Samil, who had grown up two doors down from her parents' townhouse, and who had flushed crimson and then fled, trying in vain to conceal his admittedly disappointingly small erection when she had taken their kissing to the next step and removed her blouse and bra. She had sat there, feeling the swelling within her that had started to open up and call for him fade in disappointment, and mentally shouted curses at his lack of manhood as he fled. Since that utter humiliation and the accompanying frustration that came with it, she had not let any person with a Y chromosome near her at all. And yet, Kevin had wormed his way in, and Jenny's heart had swelled to welcome him inside, although, truth be told, Kevin hadn't had to squirm or maneuver all that much. She had halfway fallen for him the moment she laid eyes on him. Tall, muscular, darkly tanned, with black hair and dark brown eyes, he'd been everything she had ever dreamed of, and her strong, powerful father taken to the next level. And so much more than that. Because while her father had meekly bent the knee, Kevin was standing up, protesting against the injustice of Terran rule and secretly in the shadows, helping to build an army that would drive the Terrans off once and for all. So why did he want to go to the New Year's Eve ball, of all things? Jenny would have presumed he would avoid the thing entirely, in protest against the blatant imperialism implicit in the event's entire premise. And yet, here he stood, on the doorstep of her parents' little house, looking at her with earnest eyes that strove very hard to not betray the fear that he was surely suppressing that she would say no, as he awaited her answer. Jenny shifted on her feet and glanced behind herself. The noonday sun shone through the open doorway into the house, augmenting the solar-tuned LEDs in the overhead to produce a warm, almost natural glow throughout the space. Her parents' well-upholstered navy blue couch and armchairs almost seemed to stand erect before the sunlight that accompanied her gaze, followed by the cream paint on the sitting-room walls and then the brown-stained faux wood in the kitchen beyond, where her mother was working on a stew of some sort for dinner. She was only in her forties, but she could have been more like fifty-five or sixty, stooped and worn as she looked, and unless Jenny was wrong, she'd be lucky to make it that long. Looking at her mother, Jenny couldn't help but wonder how much better her life would have been had someone worked to cast aside Tara's boot when she'd been Jenny's age. Someone like Kevin. Maybe he had some sort of mission planned, and he needed her as cover. If that was the case, she'd be shirking her patriotic duty to not go with him and help him. And she admitted it's not like he wasn't cute on top of everything else. So on an impulse, or maybe not really an impulse, she turned back to him and nodded briskly. I'd love to go with you, she said. Kevin's uncertain expression turned into a broad, pleased grin, and he nodded in return. Great, he said. I'll pick you up at ten. He paused and added, wear a nice dress. He winked, then turned and walked down the little set of stairs that separated her front door from the flagstone pathway that connected what little there was of their front yard. But by God, though it was little, Mom kept it trimmed, manicured, and green as Ireland, wherever that was from the sidewalks that ran alongside the street leading back to the center of town. Jenny watched him go and felt a little stirring of nervousness. If she had just signed up for a secret mission, she really hoped she didn't blow it, and blow it with Kevin in general, and she stopped in mid-thought, and the bottom went out from under her stomach. What did he said? Wear a nice dress, his voice echoed in her ears. But she didn't have any nice dresses. 
Whirling around faster than she ever had, she bounded toward the kitchen. Mom! Gavin cleaned up nice. When he showed up to Jenny's house, he was in a gray-brown suit with a white shirt and a red-orange tie that somehow made the color of his eyes stand out all the more brightly. Jenny hadn't realized it was possible, not in that color combination, but it worked. Walking next to him as they ascended the short stairwell that led from the entrance to the athletic fieldhouse where the New Year's Eve celebration was being held, Jenny felt like a weed next to a flower bed. She didn't have any nice dresses, and of course Mom and Dad didn't have the extra money to buy her one, even if there had been time to go shopping that afternoon, but Mom had an old dress stashed away in the back of her and Dad's closet, a little navy blue number that was cut to be tight in the hips, but generous in the bosom, with thin straps that ran up over her shoulders to keep the thing up, and a little slit that ran from her left ankle to mid-thigh on the same leg, which allowed for easier movement and showed off a little bit of leg as well. The problem was Jenny wasn't nearly as busty as Mom, though she was taller. So while the slit on the leg worked really well, she felt like a half-filled sack of potatoes up top. Kevin hadn't noticed, though. Or if he had, he'd been polite enough not to mention it. In fact, he said she looked great when he showed up at her door to pick her up. That was nice of him. Didn't stop her from feeling self-conscious as they reached the top of the stairs and stopped before the marble pillars lining the entrance to the field house. A short line had formed there as people were being checked by security as they made their way inside, and for a second Jenny felt a flash of nerves on top of her self-consciousness. Uh-oh, she said, glancing up at Kevin. Had his mission been blown already? He looked sidelong at her. What, did you forget something? She shook her head and gestured at the security guards in their white-collared shirts and with their heavily laden gun and utility belts and the portable metal detectors and explosive sniffers they were using to search people who hoped to enter the building. Kevin snorted. What, them? He shook his head. No sweat, Jenny, just relax. He looked back at her and raised an eyebrow. We're not doing anything wrong, just two people looking to have fun together on the big night. He didn't sound at all ironic when he said that. He really was in character. Biting her lip for a second, Jenny nodded. Then she took a deep breath, squared her shoulders, and faced forward. Ahead, the person in front of them walked inside, having cleared the security team. One of the guards, older than the others by about ten years and powerfully built beneath his uniform, waved for her to step forward. Putting on her best brave and unconcerned face, Jenny moved forward to meet him. There was dancing. Jenny hadn't known there would be dancing. Then again, when they got inside and she heard the music from the five-piece tuxedo-clad band set up on the stage at the end of the big inner hall of the field house, largely empty since the people who ran the building had retracted the bleacher seating on either side of the main hall and raised the basketball hoops on each end so they were snugged up out of the way against the ceiling, and she saw the crowd milling about with the first few couples beginning to step out to the band's music in front of the stage, Jenny realized she should have known about it. Hadn't she heard people talking about this party countless times before? She'd never gone to it, though. Previous years she'd been too young, or so Mom had said, but Mom and Dad had gone a time or two before, and other girls a grade or two above her had gossiped about it, but somehow it had never clicked that this was, in fact, a dance party. And Jenny had no idea how to dance. Not really. She stopped dead, Dread and uncertainty freezing her in place so quickly, Kevin hadn't noticed she had stopped moving until he was two paces ahead. Then he stopped, turned around, and looked at her with a concerned and confused expression. What's wrong, he said. Jenny gestured toward the dance floor. I... She trailed off. Stopped. Then drew a deep breath and tried again. I can't dance. Oh, is that all? Kevin grinned at her, then closed with her until he was just a few inches in front of her. 
She leaned her head back so she could keep looking into his eyes as he got close. She could see a mischievous smile in them. Don't worry, he said. I'll show you. Then he had her left hand looped into the crook of his right elbow and his left hand atop hers, and he led her toward the dance floor. The evening passed in a blur. After her initial hesitation, she learned the basics of how to follow Kevin on the dance floor. Then within a couple of songs, they were moving together easily, and she lost every thought except how much fun it was. Then he started introducing her to spins. The first time, she got tangled in her own feet, and she thought for a second she was going to fall, right there in front of everybody. But somehow Kevin managed to continue the movements he was making, and he scooped her up, preventing her from falling even as he made a sort of dip maneuver, where she leaned way backward and he leaned over top. As he brought them both back up, a few of the couples around the edge of the dancing area, who were watching instead of dancing, clapped. Instead of acknowledging the applause himself, Kevin stepped back, releasing one hand and sweeping his free hand from her toward the clapping members of the crowd as though to say, look at this piece of elegance who pulled off that display. And one of the guys who had been clapping broke into an approximation of a wolf whistle. Jenny flushed, unsure whether that was meant as a compliment or if it was a challenge to Kevin or an insult toward her. And then she was swept up in Kevin's dancing frame again, and he spun her away from her adoring public. Such as it was. They continued on like that for what felt like forever, and Jenny lost track of time completely. But eventually she realized she needed to stop. She was getting winded and sweaty. And so was Kevin. He seemed to know somehow that she was losing energy, and between one spin and the next, he had her led off the dance floor toward the refreshment stand that had been set up off to the side. There was punch, and harder drinks for those who were of age, and finger foods and sweets. Heaven. But Jenny felt like a mess. She must certainly have looked like it. So she begged off to use the restroom and get herself back together. Plus, she needed to go. When she got back, she found Kevin speaking with an older man in a navy blue suit and paisley tie by the refreshment stand. They didn't look like they were trying to be particularly furtive, but as she approached, the older man noticed her coming and plainly stopped what he was saying to eye her openly. Good evening, Kevin, he said as she stepped up and shook hands with him. George, Kevin said. Then George nodded to Jenny and walked away, back into the crowd. Who was that, she asked, watching him go. A friend of mine, Kevin said. He held out a cup of punch, which she accepted. Then he grinned at her openly. Drink up, he said. They're having a contest on the floor soon. And we are going to win. What? No, I can't. He just grinned more broadly at her, and she took a long gulp of the punch, those nerves coming back into her stomach. They didn't win. But damn if the contest wasn't fun anyway. The whole rest of the night was fun, and it seemed like a weight of some sort had been lifted from Kevin's shoulders, because as energetic as he had been on the dance floor before her trip to the restroom and his talk with George, he was on fire afterwards. When they left the field house at the end of the night, Jenny was soaking with sweat, but she didn't care. She couldn't remember when she'd had so much fun. And it felt good in another way, too. As the evening progressed, she became convinced that George had something to do with Kevin's mission that night. That meeting had been what he needed, and with his mission complete, he was a different man. So she had helped somehow to do her little part to rid her home of the Terran tyranny. When Kevin dropped her off in front of her parents' house, she smiled up at him. That was a good night, she said. He nodded. Best in a while. I'm glad I could help you with your mission. He looked at her askance, and she raised her eyebrows at him, amused. What? You don't think I can be? She fluttered her eyelashes at him, jokingly, discreet and undercover. Kevin cocked his head to the side and looked silently at her for a moment. What are you talking about? Your mission. She looked left and right, then leaned in toward him and said conspiratorially, 
Your meet with George. What, was he passing you info? Making arrangements for the next stop? The confused expression remained on his face. He shook his head. George was helping me get my dad's auto fixed. She blinked. Auto fixed? Yeah, his auto fixed. Some of the good humor left his voice. What did you think this was? Now it was Jenny's turn to look confused. Well, you're always talking about getting rid of the Terrans. I just thought maybe you had something going on, you know, needed a cover, and that I... She paused and spit it out. That I was helping you. Is that what you think? He rolled his eyes and stepped forward, closing the distance between them. Looking steadily into her eyes, he said, Jenny, I don't like the Terrans, but I'm not going to pass up a good party out of spite. He smiled again at her, gently. The only mission I had tonight was being with you. She felt a flush of warmth flow through her, from embarrassment at first, then from something more pleasant and tingly. Really? Really. Then his lips were on hers and she felt her knees threatening to give way. It seemed like they were there, locked together like that, for a long, long time. Then a throat cleared behind them. Jenny jumped and pushed away from him, spinning around to see her father, standing there in the shadows beside their front door. Get inside, young lady, Dad said. He didn't sound displeased, but his voice would brook no argument. Jenny looked back at Kevin and smiled an apology. He said, I'll give you a call tomorrow. Then he looked over at her dad and said, Good night, Mr. Rogan. Good night, Kevin, Dad said, and he really meant that as well, apparently. Jenny hurried inside, then rushed to her room and shut the door. It had been one hell of a night. One of the most annoying things in the world is when you've checked a thing multiple times and rechecked it multiple times and you use the thing all the time and then after months of using it you find an error that you missed during the check and the recheck and the recheck which will just happen now as i was putting this video together i noticed that the final slide that i always use at the end of this video where i give credit to the composer of the music i use gene Paul gene Paul zogby it had a typo in it. I misspelled the word through. And I've been using that damn slide since almost a year now. So, dozens and dozens of videos and dozens and dozens of uses. I never noticed that I spelled it T-H-O-R-U-G-H instead of T-H-R-O-U-G-H. How do you do that? Which, of course explains how there's typos in every book that has ever been published, no matter how many proofreads are done of it, even in some of mine. As I've stated before, as I'm reading these stories for the great, for these uh, weekly videos, I'm finding typos in the stories in Stories from the Great Challenge that despite a month spent proofing the damn thing, Still made it through every story, said at least a type as a tad typo, so which almost every my story. There's been a couple of but it's like, man, that's just a horrible job. Still spent a month doing it. Anyway, that's got nothing to do with the, the fun little story we just read. Um, just a little bit of angst that I felt like getting out, but uh, hey, so there in New Year, fun little sci fi romance. Thank you. I liked it. Hopefully, you did too. Uh, if you did, come back next week for the next one. Next week is number 27. It's called Santa Fe Station. It is not sci-fi. It is not fantasy. In fact, it's set right here in San Diego in the modern time sort of 
sort of a mystery, sort of crime, sort of just walk of life kind of story. Um, so change of pace from what we're doing here the last few weeks. But that's okay. Because change of paces are good. Um, yeah, like I said, uh, the new book is coming out on the 15th. Go pick it up. Go by michaelkingswood.com slash store. You can pick it up there. michaelkingswood.com. You can become a member of the site. Give a couple of bucks a month if you, you know, just like what I'm doing. And want to help keep the lights on around here. Maybe add some lights. <laughs> um, sign up for the newsletter there too. So you can get updates on new releases and cool deals that I do from time to time. And uh, yeah, if make sure you like this uh, video or the podcast episode or whatever. Subscribe, tell all your friends. And come back next week. It's uh, it's a good time talking modern uh, a modern story. It'll be good. I think that's all I got for now. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you like it, and I'll talk to you next time. Until then, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thanks for listening to Storytime with Michael Kingswood. For information on my books, visit michaelkingswood.com or visit my web store at ssnstorytelling.com. My books are all available through all the various e-tailers, but buying direct from me nuts me the most profit. For information on new releases and other special deals in the future, sign up for my newsletter on my website. Storytime with Michael Kingswood is copyright of Michael Kingswood. Intro and outro music is copyright Gene Paul Zogby, licensed through stockmusic.net. All rights reserved. <laughs>